Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Paranormal Blip. And in this episode, we are going right to the edge of my zone of proximal development, ZPD, which is essentially, you know, th this is where new learning happens. And so this is new learning for me, okay? This is right on the edge of, you know, my where I get to... Uh, challenge myself in relation to the evidence and what the evidence suggests, okay? So we are talking about physical mediumship. So, you know, let's see where we go with this one. Let's see! Now, we've got a bit of news and we've got the archive as normal, you know, the score now. Thank you ever so much to all of the new listeners and all of the new followers last couple of weeks. Much appreciated, and I don't often do this, but there are plenty of episodes to get your teeth into in the back catalogue. Remote viewing is one of my favourites. Bob Lazar is still controversial with some people. Um, <laughs> Chains of the Sea is by far the most popular episode. If you haven't listened to that, then get a load of that. The fantastic short story by Gardner Dozois. And then that's episode 10. Episode 11, I wanted to find out more about Mr. Dozois. So I dedicated an episode looking to him, uh, looking at him and his life and his uh, career. It's a celebration of his life. Very interesting man. And, um, well, we've got a, quite a lot. Now, number two is the most, episode two is the most relevant for today's. Because in F episode two, it's what happens after you die. So if you haven't heard that, then, you know, come on, get your skates on. Get your skates on. Now, uh, thank you also as well for following me on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter is, I should do the recording, but I might as well tell you, Twitter's at Paranormal Blip, isn't it? And Instagram is Paranormal underscore Blip underscore podcast, which I'm slightly always way behind on the old Instagram, but I'm kind of there or thereabouts with Twitter. <laughs> anyway, that was a good introduction. Yeah, so here are the bleeps. The blips. I thought, what the hell? I'm missing a trick here. I thought the other day, why aren't I calling them the blips? I think there's probably is a contingency of listeners who do say that themselves. Like, why isn't this joker calling them the blips? It's the most obvious thing to call this uh, audio. And here it is. So the news this week, we are looking at a very good article in Vice. Came out a couple of days ago. Came out yesterday, I think, as I record this. It's by Becky Ferreria. I think I hope, hopefully, I've pronounced that name correctly. And um, the, I will put a link to this article in the episode description of this episode. And the article is titled, NASA will now go full force investigating UFOs, agency says. The agency is convening a team to examine unidentified flying objects from a scientific perspective. NASA reaffirmed a full-throated commitment to studying unidentified flying objects, UFOs, during a town hall meeting held by the agency's science mission directorate, SMD, on Wednesday, WED. The meeting followed up on the recent announcement of a NASA-funded study to examine observations in the sky that cannot be explained by any known human or natural phenomena. These sightings, also known as unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, have generated immense public interest, and they also raise air safety and national security concerns, prompting NASA to delve deeper into the topic. We're going full force on the UAP study, said Daniel Evans, Assistant Deputy Associate Administrator for Research at SMD. What is that? I've forgotten what SMD means. Oh, Science Mission Directorate. That's what it means. Yeah. During Wednesday's town hall, uh, reports space.com. Vice have just nicked space's thing. Terrible. I hate it when people nick content from others to use for their own. Yeah. 
This is really important to us, and we're placing a high priority on it, says Daniel Dan. Uh, the study will be led by David Spergel, president of the Simons Foundation, who will work with some of the world's leading scientists, data practitioners, artificial intelligence practitioners, aerospace safety experts, and all with a specific charge, which is to tell us how to apply the full focus of science and data to UAPs, Evan said. So there we go. It goes on and on and on. So, you know, is it just reinventing the wheel? Probably. I mean, you would expect something like that. I mean, of course, they're going to gather up. <laughs> they are going to gather up. Uh, we spoke about the Simon, uh, the Jasons last time, didn't we? Um, old uh, Gary Nolan was talking about the Jasons, the elite group of scientists, all called Jason, mate. And now we've got the Simons Foundation. So I think that David Spurgle is going to insist that everybody's going to be called Simon. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a noteworthy, absolutely noteworthy. It does, it is news, you know. Uh, having said that, of course, they, if they're going to look at UAPs, then, you know, they're going to get a team of people to look at you. I mean, it's not really, you know, that surprising a development. Now, of course, the, the feeling is that, uh, you know, generally the feeling in UAP Twitter is that, oh, you know, NASA have known about it for years. They go out of their way to, uh, you know, kind of filter what is released to the public. Um, and, you know, or, or they are, uh, uh, they, they, because they know about it, they're kind of filtering it out at some stage, you know. So there's a kind of sense of a cover-up in relation to Nasha's Nasha, Nasha, <laughs> Nasha from the Beano, <laughs> uh, in relation to NASA's. Um, it sounds like I'm drunk. I'm not drunk. It's like really early in the morning, and I hardly drink, and I definitely don't drink at what is it? It's not really early in the morning, but it's eleven o'clock in the morning. So, but that's like a mistake that drunk people make, isn't it? When they say, anyway, um, yeah, that, that sense that NASA, you know, they're, they're deciding to look the other way at the very least. Now, you know, who knows? Who knows? Is it, um, what's that guy's name? Is it Gary McKinnon? That guy that was the, the British hacker. Do you remember that guy who decided to um, hack into um, NASA and various, you know, Department of Defense, U.S. Department of Defense sites, like a long, long time ago. And it was literally like, you know, their passwords were password. I mean, he didn't really do that big a job. And apparently he came across an image that, um, you know, and then you've got that woman as well. Do you, do you know this thing? If you know it, then you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know it, you're definitely not being illuminated by, by me going, Oh, you got that woman as well. But you know that woman who said that she was like, went into a room and a mate of hers, she worked at NASA. Um, hold on a second. That's it. Donna Hare. Donna Hare. Donna Hare said um, that she was, she kind of wandered into this room where a colleague of hers was working and it wasn't in her department apparently. And as she looked at, the, this image with this like flying saucer, like this obvious flying saucer, uh, in this image, this kind of NASA image from space, and um, this guy, this colleague, said, "Why oh, you won't believe it, Donna? Hair? We airbrush these things. We hairbrush these things, Donna Hair. So you know, I mean, I take that with a massive pinch of salt. I mean, obviously, it's totally." You know, there's no proof of that whatsoever, is it? Is there? So that's the, you know, the, because of various things like that, there's a bit of a sense that NASA aren't being utterly truthful about their knowledge of the UAP subject. But it looks like they're, you know, kind of making a bit of a meal out of saying that they're going to go full force. I like the um, nice bit of, you know, um, cash for Disney with the Star Wars reference there. Nice one, yeah, I like it. So anyway, that's the news.
Physical mediumship. Physical mediumship is when during a sitting or a seance, uh, essentially entities become physical in a certain regard. They use ectoplasm to do this. And so we will listen uh, to people that know much better than I about it, much better than me about it. <laughs> now, we're going to begin with a short clip by Leslie Keane. Leslie Keane, sometimes pronounced Kane, but I think it's Keane, who is, uh, you know, responsible for a large part for the uh, supercharged nature of the, the basically the revolution. Let's call it a revolution, eh? Why not? We've got John Lennon at the end of the show, so we've got to call it a revolution. Um, in you know the famous December. 2017 New York Times article. And so Leslie Keane, she describes this as the most exciting thing happening in uh, parapsychology. Um, this, and she's been involved with a physical medium uh, sitting group for some time, and we'll discuss that later. But first of all, here's Leslie. Uh, this really was an expanding step for me to move from the sort of more physical element of UFOs to this bigger question of um, whether we survive death or not. And um, yeah, so it's really what interests me now the most. So that's from an excellent interview um, that Grant Cameron and a colleague of his conducted with Leslie Keane and the medium Stuart Alexander, who's a physical medium. And Mr. Alexander is a practicing medium, you know, currently in England. And Leslie Keane has been part of his group for, for some time now. Now, very interestingly, Stuart Alexander uh, sat with his, with his home group, a home sitting group full of people that not too many people, and he knew these people pretty well. And it took them years, I think he said three years in the, um, Grant Cameron interview, which is linked in the episode description, um, three years before anything. And then it started to build up, and he's been doing it now for many years, I think at least 40 years. And it's absolutely extraordinary. We we're going to go straight into Leslie Keane talk about uh, probably the most, well, she says, you know, this the most extraordinary um, event that has taken place for her in one of Mr. Alexander's sittings. It's so hard to describe what that experience is like. I tried to, in my epilogue to Stuart's book, I tried to write it as best I could um, to write about what it felt like. And it's just, um, it's so indescribable. I had had, I had been with Dr. Barnett a few other times, maybe twice before when he materialized, but um, this time was the most intense because, um, he because of the time he spends so just so that people understand what happens first of all dr barnett is a, is one of stewart's um spirit team i guess you call it his spirit friends who normally communicates through independent voice which means he doesn't speak through stewart's body which the others do but he speaks separately from stewart's body he uses ectoplasm to form his own way of communicating so the voice his voice is extremely familiar um, and occasionally he will fully materialize and walk through the room. And so on this occasion, um, <clears throat> what happens is Stuart will be inside the cabinet when this happens. This is a curtained kind of enclosure, which normally he's not inside or it's completely opened. So they, they close it before this event happens to kind of concentrate the energy the best way. I mean, you know, who knows what's really going on, but anyway. And, um, and then it has reflective patches on it. Is that right? That's right. And so you see, so we're in the dark for all of this because this can't happen in full light. Unfortunately, we all wish it could, but the, you can see the, the little tabs on the, on the curtains and you can hear them flapping and then you see them open. And then you can hear Dr. Barnett walking through the room because it's a small circle and he will walk around everybody. And often he will make sounds with his feet just so that people can hear him. Sometimes he'll bring helpers with him. Sometimes people will feel hands on their, you know, as he comes out. Um, 
from his helpers that he brings. They're often children. And so somebody will be sitting in one spot. I feel two hands on me and somebody else will feel, I feel hands on me, you know? So anyway, on this occasion, I mean, he walked through the circle and he, he stood right in front of me and you know that he's right there because you hear the voice right in front of you. But also he, so he has these large materialized hands and he put them on the top of my head like this, although they were yeah facing that way. And I could feel them and he would just like, I'll just do one. He's like going like this, bouncing it like really fast, both his hands on my head for like 30 seconds. I mean, it was, I know how long it was because we had an audio tape and I, it was a really long time and he said what you said, I just wanted to let you know that I, that I'm in a, I can be physical or something like that. It is the most stunning, awe-inspiring, transformative experience ever. I mean, you just feel like you're in some other reality of glorious reality. It's just this, this man just comes out of nowhere, right? And he's physical and he can talk and he can touch you. And then he disappears into nothing. And it, it's so mind-blowing and so wonderful. I can barely describe it. I mean, it is like being in sort of an ecstatic state almost for me, at least on that particular occasion, because it was normally he'll walk around. My other experience is he would go faster and he might just touch you once, but he really stood there and it was like, whoa, you know? Um, so that I will, I will never forget that, you know, I mean, um, I don't know. If, yeah, it, I, I'm sure it's extremely hard for people to accept that anything like this can ever happen, but it, it really happens. And I mean, I have worked with Stuart long enough and studied, you know, when I first started working with Stuart, I, of course, checked out every possibility that there could be any tricks, even though after reading his book, it was pretty clear to me there weren't, but I still did my job, you know. And I've also studied mediums of the past in which this has, these things have happened under strict controls and studied by astute Nobel Prize winning scientists who've gone into these seances with mediums and, you know, put them under incredibly strict controls and have documented the reality of these things happening. So, you know, I mean, I went into this note having studied all the previous cases, the, the most authentic ones, and I thought, well, if it happened then, why can't it happen now? You know, it's really not that, you know, even though it's mind blowing. So I, I just feel it was important to me when I wrote my book to kind of lay out what some of the history of this is before I, I wrote about what happened with Stuart. So people would have some context because it is so hard for anybody just coming out of the blue to really understand and accept that this could be possible, which is completely understandable to me. So Dr. Burnett is a, a doctor, like the past, you know, dead person, who is a group of, uh, I think there's about three or four of them, that are essentially um, what Stuart Alexander describes as his spirit team. So these uh, spirits are the, the people that come and, uh, you know, kind of uh, talk through Stuart during these sittings, okay, except for Dr. Burnett. Dr. Burnett uh, uses his own voice to, uh, you know, to, to um, communicate with the sitters, okay? So that's extraordinary. And, and of course, you know, Leslie Keane being the journalist that she is, she immediately then start, starts talking about, you know, I perfectly understand how People will find it difficult to believe what I'm saying. All I can say is that this happened, but I totally understand how people can, you know, like doubt what I'm saying because it's so extraordinary. Yeah? So now we're going to listen to um, Stuart Alexander himself. And he's talking about how few people have the patience now to, uh, you know, really take the time to uh, sit and to, you know, kind of be there in a kind of state where it's possible for the presence of spirits to manifest themselves um and like i say i think it's uh, it was three years that he met on a weekly basis with people that he trusted and knew um you know before anything happened and um here he talks about you know we live in an age now where essentially that's not happening as much as it used to all across europe all across the world 100 years ago. I think it's a great shame uh, that today 
people are not or very few people are prepared to sit and wait upon spirit in the way that they did for over a hundred years you know people want instant we're living in an instant world don't we people want instant results and i've lost track over the years of people that have told me that they've formed a wonderful circle and they're starting to get results some months later i've spoken to them and how's the circle going oh well you know it, it collapsed but i've got another circle and this is how it goes you know uh, i think it's such a shame such a shame because physical particularly physical mediumship its development cannot be rushed it takes time it takes time sometimes years it takes you know to develop um and, it, and it's so vitally important in my opinion it's so vitally important so we're getting now to the main concern of mine around this, which is the question, what happens after you die? Does consciousness continue? For Leslie Keane, it's a settled argument. For Leslie Keane, it's a fact. I mean, the fact that consciousness functions independently of the brain, to me, is like, at this point, it's been established as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's so much data, as Grand is well aware, that shows that that's true. And it's in my book, Surviving Death. I mean, it's all through the book. That's like the basic reality. And then I think then we have questions about where do these spirit people come from? And is it really them? And is there is there is it survival side or is it human side that's involved or a combination and all these other questions that come up? But the fact that it happens and that it can happen without a brain being involved is, is, as far as I'm concerned, it's a fact now. So personally speaking, I think that is the key aspect to all of this. I and the you know, uh, research that I've done, I'm convinced, and people I've spoken to, I'm convinced that uh, consciousness survives death. It is absolutely you know, kind of nailed on. And Leslie King says the same thing as well but um you know it's, it's, it's totally i expect very much so that <laughs> uh you know matter transforms we know this i mean we everyone knows this matter transforms i think that consciousness survives death i don't think that it is a uh, controversial thing to say even you know and i have had numerous accounts spoken to me uh, confidentially, um, of people that that say the same thing and can you know anecdotally, obviously, but in their experience, it certainly suggests that consciousness survives death. And then the only thing, then therefore, in this uh, kind of you know world of the zone of proximal development, kind of getting to understand this better and and challenging my own. Uh, assumptions, you know, all of the kind of cultural and historical context of my life. Uh, then again, you know, episode one, by the way, I was brought up by uh, parents that wrote about this stuff. You know what I mean? So, and, uh, you know, the librarian is looking at the deep cut. She read Mystic Forces. Nobody reads Mystic Forces. Everyone reads the children at the time forgot. Yeah. Anyway, episode one, if you don't know what I'm talking about, origin story. But um, so I've never really been closed off to this idea, but my my uh, mom especially, uh, she knew some mediums, but I think for her it was right on the edge of a kind of accepting um, accepting that, you know. Um, nevertheless, you know, if um, you believe that consciousness continues, then... Is it that much of a stretch that, um, you know, some uh, beings in the afterlife are able to communicate? I'm, I've said all along that there are, and we know this, you know, if you listen to this, I'm sure you know this, you know, people have uh, kind of different spectrums of abilities uh, in relation to a whole host of um, parapsychological, um, you know, fields or areas. Yep. Some people are good at remote viewing. Some people are good at, uh, you know, this or that, blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe not good at, but able to do that. Yeah. 
And so in the whole span of, you know, the kind of possibilities of a life, it's not that surprising that there are some people that are very, very good at or able to um, communicate with uh, people, beings that are passed on. Oh, by the way, on that, by the way, um, we're going to speak about Franek Klutsky in a minute. And he was not just communicating with people, he was communicating with all kinds of things. Very interesting. But on this, so, so I'm trying to kind of, um, what's the word, like challenge myself, essentially, you know. And I do think that consciousness survives death. I can imagine that there are some people, not me, some people, as they say in the Irishman, some people, not me, um, who can have this ability to communicate with people that have died. Yep. So is it that, like, it's not that big a leap for me to think, well, come on then, the other guys, like, you know, in the other on the other side, maybe it is possible for them to do these things that sound extraordinary, for hands to uh, appear. So Leslie Keane talks about this, I mean, the, you know, the, the thing with Dr. Burnett, one of the spirit guides, tapping her on the head <laughs> for 30 seconds. How irritating is that? I would be super irritated if, that, if somebody did that to me. Uh, anyway, um, but she says that hundreds of times, Stuart Alexander has, has essentially kind of um, facilitated Dr. Burnett has got this line that he says. He says, would you like to touch the hand of a man who's died a hundred years ago? Something like that. And, uh, and he does. Like all of this incredible ectoplasm, which they can, you can see this. So the, you know, the, the, other, the other stuff is um, done in the dark. But this is is uh, lit up with a red light, so people can see this ectoplasm moving like water, like over a table, like floating over a table, and then it forms into this massive hand. Like it's unbelievable. And um, Leslie Keane, uh, once at least once, shook this hand or touched this hand. She describes the hand as being warm large and uh, very like new skin like baby skin so you know absolutely extraordinary and the hand you know kind of like knocks on the table to show that it's you know solid i mean absolutely incredible stuff and apparently this has been done you know hundreds of times now one question i have for leslie and for Stuart, if you ever listen to this, or if you know people that can get in contact with Leslie and Stuart, please ask this question on my behalf. Please photograph that, okay? Because if you've got a red light to do as a photo, I know that it might not go with the energy in the room, and there's probably are, you know, like very legitimate reasons why you haven't done a photo. But there are photos of Franek Klutsky's um, sittings. Um, so you probably have thought about it, you know, like years ago. They, they're not, probably not listening to this. Leslie Keane has listened to this. Going, oh, I should have thought about photographing it. <laughs> but anyway, I, I thought I'd ask because it's kind of obvious thing to want to see. Do you know what I mean? Um, photos of this. So anyway, anyway. We're now going to go on to um, Klutsky. Now, Franek Klutsky, that wasn't his name. He, this guy was um, working in the 19, 1910s and 1920s as a physical medium. He was a banker. That was his job. He was also a writer. He had a column in a Polish newspaper about finance. So he was a very, you know, kind of um, straight, guy as you'd say you used to use the word straight to describe like you know kind of um mainstream you know um having said that he did have this extraordinary ability to manifest uh entities in his sittings and he was uh i'm going to jump to um leslie Keane talking to jeff mishlove in new thinking aloud in a minute to you know, go, go on about this a little bit more, to, to, to explain this, I should say. 
Um, but essentially, you know, he, he was a banker. He had this ability and it's quite extraordinary the things that, that would happen in his sittings. Franikluski was a Polish physical medium. He was highly educated. He was in the business world, a sophisticated person, and he had these abilities. They were sort of ran in the family. He had strange abilities as a child. And what's important about him is, well, first of all, there were a lot of materializations that took place in his seances that were very bizarre and not always pleasant to be around. And there were animals and all kinds of strange creatures and it was often chaotic in his seance room. And uh, a lot of these sophisticated intelligentsia and scientists and philosophers and people from his country went and sat with him. But the, the most important element of his mediumship is the fact that two leading scientists of the day, uh, Richet, Charles Richet and Gustave Jullet, they're both French. Richet was a Nobel Prize winner. They took uh, Franek Kluski into, we were talking about a lab, into a lab it, it, at, at an institute in Paris. And this was a room in which they had complete control. It had no windows. And they took him in and sat with him under tightly controlled conditions. And, and you know, the, they, there's somebody sitting on either side of the medium holding his legs and hands so they know he's not moving around the room. Uh, they had some light on in the room. They checked him to make sure he didn't bring anything in. I mean, all the standard things, they were astute investigators and they knew how to have the strictest control so that fraud could be eliminated, completely eliminated as a possibility. And what these men did was they, they um, brought in a tub of, of hot wax, which was kept hot on, on top of a boiling, some boiling water. They asked these materializing forms in the room to dip their hands into the wax and to make a glove around their materialized hand. And then when the wax dried, the hand would dematerialize and drop this wax glove on, the, on a table or on the lap of a sitter. And this was their way of making a permanent record of these materialized hands. And uh, there were a series of 11 seances that they held in, they call it, seance is just the, the word that's used to describe a sitting with a physical medium. I don't really like the word, but that's what, that's what they use. So there were 11 of them at these, at this lab in Paris. And they were, and so you can also read descriptions of people in the room. Sometimes they could see the, the little lights forming around the hands and they could actually see them doing this. They could, they could hear the wax splashing, the wax would drip around the room. And um, then these hot, these things would drop on them. So then afterwards they could take these wax gloves, pour plaster in them and, and remove the wax. And then they would have this perfect replica of this materialized hand. And what's really interesting about them, Jeff, is that there, if you look at these molds, you, there's no way that, it, first of all, the wax was so thin, paper thin, that a hand could not remove itself from that wax without destroying it. Uh, another really interesting factor is that sometimes they were interlocked like this. So you had two hands. So to imagine trying to slide a hand out when they're interlocked. You're, you'd have them in positions with a finger pointing or something. Another really evidential component was that some of them were child size. So even though they had the features of, a, of an adult, like a, all the features of an adult hand, they were the size of a child, which is another sort of paranormal component of it that points towards the impossibility of, of some human being in the room having done it. And the scientists were very careful to control it, as I said, and they would sometimes slip dye into the uh, wax without telling anyone else in the room. There'd be a few other people in the room because it helps bring energy into the room, but they wouldn't tell anybody, including the medium, that they put that dye in there and then when the molds were made, they could compare it to the actual wax in the room. They measured everything. They measured the amount of wax that was there at the beginning versus the amount at the end and how much, how much, how many molds were made and how much did they weigh and, you know, very, very, very meticulous. And so I, I just absolutely love these molds. I remember when I discovered them during research to me, they were sort of like this most miraculous manifestation of this of the reality of materializations. And I used to stare at the photographs all the time. And 
and they, you know, there was a big thick book about them, long, long detailed descriptions of every single time one was one was made and how it was made. And um, then I had the opportunity to go to Paris last fall, where they're actually stored. They're locked in a vault in the dark, you know, in an in at this at the in metaphysical institute in Paris. Um, and the curator there was nice enough to bring them out and I was able to actually look at them and touch them and that was a major moment for me. So they have this real uh, kind of magical, mystical quality to me, but they're physical, they're real. So I, I, I think they're really important and they're very, very important evidence in my mind for the reality of this. So Leslie King talks about the chaotic nature of Klutsky's sitting as well, uh, you know, it's chaotic. He uh, was able to manifest this bird that kept coming along. And there's a photo as well of um, Klutsky with this bird. And a lion as well, like some like mangy-looking mangy looking lion would turn up and start licking everyone's faces. And also this extraordinary um, archaic human, like a kind of ape-man type. And I'm going to read now from a um, PDF of this journal called uh, Physics Science, which uh, was was published in uh, 1923. And I've got the PDF linked in the episode description, as you can, as you can well imagine. So um, take a gander at that. And this is absolutely extraordinary. Listen to this. So this is an account of one of Klutsky's uh, seances. And I'm reading from a publication called physic uh, sorry psychic science <laughs> and the pdf i start reading on page 55 of the pdf and it's a pdf it's a scanned or photographed um copy of a kind of bound um like a volume a compendium of these um psychic science journals so within the like on the photo what you're looking at is, you know, uh, photos of a book. And we're going from page 139 of the, of the books, uh, of the book. Uh, but that's page 55 of the PDF, which is linked in the episode description. And the uh, page 139 begins with this word, which is very difficult to say, but I'll have a go. The Pithecanthropus. Oh, not that difficult. The Pithecanthropus. Now, what is that? Well, let's find out. I'm going from the final paragraph on page 55, so read along, please. The first seance, which was typical of the series, was held on August the 30th, 1919. There were present, in addition to the medium, seven men and women. They began the sitting at 10.45pm, and their expressed object was to obtain photographs of materialised forms. At 1130 as no phenomena had eventuated, they interrupted the sitting, but continued it at 12.15. Almost immediately, lights were seen around the medium, and at the same time, creaking noises and the sound of steps were heard. The medium then requested that when the materialised entity was ready to be photographed, uh, was ready to be photographed, it should give as a signal four distinct raps, and there then appeared on the scene a materialised form which is thus described, quote, it was, a, and this is, uh, by the way, this is the wife of another parapsychologist called Mackenzie. So this is, I don't know what her first name is, you know, back in the day, 200 years ago, you were just Mrs. Mackenzie, weren't you? Yeah, you were Mrs. Mackenzie. 200 years ago. Anyway, quote, it was a creature of the height of an adult man with a body which was thickly covered with hair, a large mane and a tangled beard. It was clothed as though d'un peu craquante. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. That's in French. D'un peu craquante. What's peu mean? I don't know. Its appearance was that of a beast or a very primitive man. It did not speak, but it emitted raucous sounds with its lips, flapped its tongue about and gnashed its teeth, trying in vain 
to make itself understood. When it was called, it moved towards the sitters and let them stroke its hairy skin. It touched their hands and scratched them very gently with claws rather than nails. It obeyed the, the voice of the medium and did not hurt the sitters, whom it only gently touched. End quote. This was an improvement, as at former seances this creature had shown brutish violence. It had an obvious tendency and a tenacious desire to lick the faces and the hands of the sitters who resisted these disagreeable caresses. Oh my God. It obeyed every order given by the medium, not only when this order was expressed by word, but even when it was only willed. Other materializations of ordinary men and women followed, and then the four wraps photog for photography were heard. The magnesium for flashlight was prepared, and at this moment the little red electric lamp, which was on the table at some distance from and facing the medium, extinguished itself. The photograph was taken, and the little lamp relighted itself. The following creakings and movement of furniture then followed creakings of movement of furniture, a little table and a wooden column which supported a candelabrum was transported over the heads of the medium on one of the sitters and placed in the middle of the circle. Simultaneously, the sofa was pushed against the chair upon which one of the sitters was seated. At 2.45 a.m., the seance was interrupted for a short rest and 4 a.m. resumed. Polish songs and hymns were then sung. Numerous lights were seen and four raps were again given and a photograph was taken. But at 4.15am the medium requested the seance should come to an end as he was tired and small wonder. So there we go. So that's a description of a, a seance in which this creature appears. Now the that's a, a kind of that term Pithecanthropus is not used anymore. It's a kind of, um, you know, it, 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 now it's Java man. Uh, so the, these are archaic humans. So if you take a look at Java man, then you'll see the kind of, uh, you know, creature, the kind of um, being that supposedly manifested itself at that seance in Poland in 1919. So it's really interesting about the die that they that these two guys, these two um, investigators, would sometimes put dye that had a particular chemical signature in it, you know, in the paraffin. So then, you know, you can't. So the only this is all covered in Surviving Death, the fantastic, I think it's six part television program that came out last year that is on Netflix worldwide. And Leslie, it's Leslie Keane's, um, you know, kind of examination of the paranormal, essentially. Um, but not UFOs, more to do with, you know, consciousness after death. Um, and I think it's episode three, which is called like Mediums Part Two or something like that. I think it's episode three, which covers uh, Franek Klutsky. And you can actually see um, the, the molds, the paraffin hand molds. Uh, there and also in the episode description I've linked to the uh, website page of the institute in Paris that holds the molds but on surviving death you actually see the molds you know they go there to the institute and they film the molds and the guy that's uh, they that is there who's kind of explaining what they are he basically says that the only way this isn't real is if um everybody was in on it you know the, the director of this place this nobel prize winning physicist like all of these people were in on on the con that's the only way that it could happen and um you know <laughs> so of course it's very difficult to kind of um uh what's the word like categorically um say that this happened of course because i wasn't alive like i wasn't in the room basically you know, you've basically got to be in the room where it happens for you to have that experience that Leslie talks about, which gives you a certainty. And of course, as she talks about, it is perfectly acceptable for people that aren't in that room 
no matter what the evidence, no matter what the photographs, no matter what the kind of paraffin molds or whatever else, the wax paraffin molds that come out of the room, no matter what happens outside the room, if you're not in the room, there's always going to be that element of doubt, okay? And with me as well as everyone else, my doubt is lessening, but I'm not like, you know, I'm not, I haven't kind of researched this for years, but what I do know is that I do um, respect absolutely and believe and trust Leslie Keane. I mean, Leslie Keane isn't going to put her reputation on the line, like writing a part of um, Stuart, the epilogue for Stuart Alexander's book and talking about it and putting it on a show that she's, you know, uh, made for Netflix and all the rest of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I do think that this is a, a real phenomenon, as outlandish and as extraordinary as it seems. I think it's a real phenomenon. So, so there we go. So we've got uh, also in the episode description an excellent interview with somebody that wrote a book recently about Fanek um, Klutsky. So if you're interested in that, then, um, you know, read away. So that is physical mediumship. Very, very fascinating area. Absolutely fascinating area. And um, if you do know Stuart or Leslie, please do ask them that question. Give us a photo of the massive hand when you get a chance, please. And now we're going to go into John Lennon, just like not actually go into him, but here's the archive. The archive this episode, we are going to be listening to John Lennon describe his UFO experience. And in his song, Nobody Told Me, he puts in a little cheeky line doesn't he yeah and the line goes something like UFOs of New York and I ain't too surprised something like that and here he is here's John Lennon now this is a this is courtesy of USB uh, sorry UFOB on Twitter they've got a, it's on um, Twitter as well as YouTube their YouTube um channel which i subscribe to and i suggest you do too and you can find a link of the video in the episode description they've got an outstanding talk about archive this is what i want my archive to be you know in 55 billion years time but it will never be that good but it's a brilliant you know a whole hub of you know massive amounts of uh, documentaries and loads and loads of stuff anyway here's uh, mr lennon talking Oh, yeah. So hold on. I was just going to explain what you're going to listen to. So it's John, uh, first of all, uh, very good audio and then kind of cranky wanky audio. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is like in the middle section, it only lasts for about a minute or so or about maybe 45 seconds. But I think I'll give you a heads up. Oh, no. Yeah. And um, but he does give more detail about the craft. And then his uh, companion at the time, I don't know much about John Lennon. Is it Cynthia? Maybe it was Cynthia. Is that is that an ex-wife of John Lennon's? I don't know. I'm not a big Lennon head, really. But anyway, whoever it is, she's then interviewed. And so, yeah, what I'm saying is like 45, minute, 45 seconds in the beginning is a bit ropey, but it's only a couple of minutes long. So, you know. Much better than Rupert and Terence, the, the other episode of 29. God, they went on and on and on. Very, very good. Very interesting stuff. But you really got to get in the vibe to play that clip, haven't you? So this is a lot more kind of accessible. So anyway, here he is. Here's the old uh, Dr. Lennon. Over here, up there, I saw a UFO. And it went down the river, turned right at the United Nations. <laughs> Turn left and then down the river. It wasn't a helicopter, and it wasn't a balloon, and it was so near. And it looked what, sort of uh, round, just, white, just reminiscent, like, and silent. Uh, silent, and it looked dark, like black or gray in the middle, and had white lights, just looked like light bulbs, you know? Just going off, on, off, on, off, on, blink, 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 round the bottom, and on top was a red light. If you see a little note on walls and bridges, it says, I saw a UFO. And I was just finished doing walls and bridges. I mastered it, or done the last tape of it, and I was really just relaxed and feeling good. And it was summer in New York, and I had the window open. And lo and behold, there was this thing just hovering 
sort of a hundred yards away. But I saw it so close, it wasn't in the sky or nothing, you know? And it was like, I could have hit it with a brick if I'd thrown a stone at it. I couldn't see the colours, because it was dusk. So it was a good, clear summer night. You know, the sky was very clear. And round the bottom of it were just ordinary-looking electric light bulbs, blinking off and on alternatively, like on a billboard. And on the top of it was a red light. And the thing I noticed was that there was no noise, and I could hear that freeway down below, all the cars going. So I realized, oh, it's not a helicopter, then it must be a balloon. But it was so close to the rooftop that it couldn't be a balloon. So all the rational things I went through, not a helicopter, a balloon. Not a balloon, it's too close to the roof. And it's maneuvering too well to be a balloon. So I just watched it, and it, it was there for about five or ten minutes. It went off down the East River, and uh, there it was, and that's all I've got to say about it. And we didn't also know, he was a doodler, like this is some of his, oh. his work here, it looks like a UFO. Well, there's a famous story, we saw a UFO one night, and it was really him that first saw it on mm -hmm. our balcony. And he said, oh, what's all those bright lights, oh, it must be the, the uh, billboards out here. And he said, wait a minute, we don't live, we live in a res residential area. So he turned around, he sees this thing, and he realized that if he doesn't call me out, I'll say he's crazy. Right. So I get called out, and there are two of us standing nude on dark, mm -hmm. 9.30 at night, looking at this thing with no noise, nothing. So he took the first thing, which was um, obviously a manila envelope, and, and drew it just so he wouldn't forget what it looked like. And wow. it was a, a bright red light with white light going around. It's metal, that metal, mm. you know, hot look. So it just behooves me to say, thanks ever so much for listening. Thanks for your support. And um, thanks for getting in contact with me as well, all the guys that have. So thank you ever so much. Oh, by the way, um, my bro... Chris got in contact, and I really messed up. I said Tuscan instead of Tucson. I know it's Tucson. What's wrong with me? My brother Chris, who lives in Arizona, got in contact via Twitter, and he said it is Tucson, not this guy. And he had a lovely little gif of a Tuscan warrior. So I do apologize to the listeners in Arizona and listeners in Tucson. And thank you, for Chris, for pointing out the bleeding obvious and <laughs> apologies and um i expect that uh, there's i think there's another no i don't think there's any other mistakes okay see you later